So last week we were speaking to wives in the church, and it was a particular message for wives, but there was broad application for all of us, of course, in the church. And today we're going to be speaking to the husbands. And it might seem a little unfair as we saw six verses directly addressed to the wives, but today we're only going to see one verse directed towards the husbands. Now, it sort of evens itself out because in Ephesians, husbands get a much longer treatment than the wives do. And here it seems it's the opposite way. Peter gives a much longer treatment uh, to the wives. But as I was, pre- I was preparing for this passage, what I was expecting I was going to have to do as I was dealing with this text was, I'm going to have to go to other places in the Bible to try to pad it out, turn it into a full-length sermon. And then as I came to this passage, I realized that I was very quickly running out of space to get this into my sermon. And so, guys, we are going to get smashed today by Peter. And you won't firstly recognize it as we read the passage, but as I unpack it, you'll start to realize, hang on a minute, I've got some work to do. And so I've got three points. Last week, we dealt with the various temptations that faced women as distinct creatures as opposed to men. Today, we're going to be learning about the temptations that are specific to men uh, generally, they can apply to all of us, but uh, generally men uh, fall into these temptations more. And so here are my three points. The enticement of passivity. Number two, the enticement of derision. And number three, the enticement of solitude. And so we're going to deal with those three as we get through the passage, which is just one verse. So let's read it together. Verse seven. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. So my first point is the enticement of passivity. This verse starts off with the word likewise. And so we have to understand what is he meaning? Because likewise can mean in like manner or the same way. And it brings us back to the major point that Peter is trying to make. He's laid down a principle for all of us. And he's now going to develop that principle. And he's now applied it to women and wives. And he's going to apply it now to men and husbands. Each of these have separate and distinct duties. And yet they are following the example of Christ. And what is that example? 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 and 23. For to this you have been called, pay attention because you've been called to this as a Christian, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter's point here is that we ought to follow the example of Christ and do good to those who might do evil to us. We don't repay evil for evil, nor do we mock and revile those who treat us as Christians, uh, uh, treat us, sorry, in that way. The point Peter is making to Christians, especially married Christians, is this. You have to do your duty before God, whether or not your spouse is reciprocating. You have to do what is right in your marriage, whether or not your wife is doing what she's called to do or whether or not your husband is doing what he is called to do. And if we live after this pattern of suffering, we will quickly learn that this suffering is not meaningless. It produces wonderful things in our people. This suffering actually does something. And so we should willingly take that suffering on board because we know that it is going to cause transformation in those we love. 
It was this pattern we saw in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 11. Peter says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what personal time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Do you remember how, when I preached on this passage, I really emphasized the phrase here, subsequent glories? It's a pattern that God has set forth. Christ's suffering did something, didn't it? It won for himself a people. He won for himself subsequent glories we see here. So also when we, we suffer, we secure for ourselves and our families and our communities subsequent glories. Because in the times that I've, you know, been involved in various people's marriages, and especially my own marriage, I don't feel like doing what God calls me to do when I feel like I've been sinned against. When I feel like Beck has done me wrong, I'm not going to go out of my way to be nice to her. And God tells me, no, that is not how you ought to behave. In fact, most marital conflict can be boiled down to this. You did this to me, so I'm not going to do this for you. And then a vicious cycle of reinforcement comes where you work your way down until someone stops it and says, hang on a minute, stop yourselves from going down there. You have to take on that suffering. You have to recognize that, yes, you are married to a sinner. And yes, you do need to forgive them. We saw last week that wives had a powerful ability to win their husbands, to bring immense glory to their households through their respectful and pure conduct. And this week, Peter is saying, likewise. I've only preached on the first word and we're already like solid way in. Likewise, husbands, be the men that God calls you to be. Even if your wives might be shirking that responsibility, even if your wives might not be doing what they're called to do, it doesn't matter. You are called to this. And he says to husbands, here's how you ought to live with your wives in an understanding way or literally literally in the Greek, according to knowledge. Now, I want you to notice very quickly that Peter's not giving you good marital advice. He's not saying, here's a self-help book. Open up the self-help book. If you follow these five steps uh, to, you know, five quick tools to supercharge your relationship or these 10 steps to a loving marriage, he's not giving you this. What is he giving you? It's not something to fix you. It's not something to help you, it's something to renew you. He's saying, if you follow this, you will have a completely new marriage. And Peter's addressing a temptation. And this is a very real temptation that many of the men in this room will probably say a big amen to. And that's the sin of passivity. The sin that makes you apathetic. Where you stop caring and you just go through the motions. Rather than taking stock of the spiritual welfare of your household, you sleep on the dangers presenting themselves to it. And when you do this, it undermines the health and stability of your home, and it greatly exasperates and discourages your family. Men are not just prone to... uh, They're not really prone to carefully understanding situations. They're not really prone to acting with skill and with wisdom and using their relational abilities and being caring and understanding. Often, as men, we can make sweeping generalizations. We can come to fast conclusions, we can flare up in anger, or we retreat to our man caves or wherever your retreating place is. Rather than being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, it's often hard to get the man's attention. It's hard to get a word in, and it's very easy to tick him off. What must men do instead? He says here, live with understanding. Understanding. 
live as according to knowledge. You must carefully study your wife. She is a very different creature to you. And just when you think you've worked her out, you might find out that there's yet more to discover. And God called two uh, men to two tasks in the garden. And that is the task of working and the task of keeping. Put another way, it's the task of cultivating and the task of guarding. The task of striving and the task of defending. And these two jobs are outward-focused jobs. Men are hardwired to be externally focused. If you get a bunch of children in a room and you sit, sit them in a circle and you alternate boy, girl, boy, girl, all the girls face into the circle and all the boys face out of the circle, trying to find out what's going on outside. It's the way that we're made. We assess jobs that need to be done. We want, we need to work out where money can be made and where threats need to be neutralized. Men know how to work the soil. We know how to plant businesses. We know how to grow organizations and we know how to turn dirt into planes. We know how to turn dirt into buildings. We were made to be fruitful and to build. And the job of a husband is to be outward orientated. But And often, this can begin to take more and more dominance over their lives until they are so outward focused that they forget that God has called them to shepherd and cultivate the work that they have built. When men disregard their homes and they fixate on their own little kingdoms outside of the work that God has called them to, they can begin to increasingly abdicate their responsibilities. But a Christian husband and a Christian father is not so. They are indeed outward focused, but they take time to assess home base. They take time to take stock of the most important tasks, and that's their own household. Peter says, when it comes to the relationship with your wife, it shows up in the form of knowing her. It's often the most important tasks and responsibilities that see the most neglect. And your relationship with your wife is the bedrock of the home. That team must be strong. If that team is not strong, that household will begin to grow weak and it will begin to collapse. And if the husband doesn't do it, you place your family in a serious spiritual risk. One of the ways you see in evangelical churches is sometimes you see the mother show up at church with the kids in tow the father's nowhere to be seen. And in such cases, only one in 50 children will stick it out in the faith. Men are important. Fathers, you are important. You are strong and you are made to be strong for a reason. And leads me to my second point, the enticement of derision. Peter goes on to give this command, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And first, let's address what Peter means by referring to women as the weaker vessel. Well, a lot of ink has been spilt on this topic, trying to pass out what that phrase means exactly, but I really do think that this phrase is as clear as day. It's as easily interpreted, a child can interpret it for us. Vessel literally means a jug or a pot that holds water. It's elsewhere used in the New Testament to refer to a person, a human being, someone's body. Uh, Weaker here in the Greek, asthenesis, Asthenes, sorry, literally means not strong. That's what the word means, not strong. And the fact that this verse is controversial is why we are having national conversations about whether men, confused about their gender, can compete in women's sports. There is a clear and distinct physiological difference between men and women. One of the glories of men is that they are made to be strong. That is part of their created glory. 
It's what makes them distinct. If God made them to work and keep the garden, you can bet that God furnished them with the natural abilities to complete that task. If God made women to be helpers and mothers, you can bet that God furnished women with the ability to do that task. And God wants men, as strong, able-bodied, hard-working men, to give honor to our wives as the physically weaker person in the relationship. God wants men to honor God's creational design as very good. Men and women are different. They are furnished and tasked with different things. A man, you can consider him to be like a firm metal mug. You want to take that thing camping with you. You can throw it in your pack. When you want to have a bit of uh, hot tea, you can throw it in the fire. You can bang a nail in if you really wanted to with it. That's what they're designed to do. They're strong. And yet a woman is more del- a delicate vessel, more like a beautiful vase or a decorative coffee mug or fine china. It would be foolish to compare the two of them. They do different tasks. They're made for different things. G.K. Chesterton, famous poem, says this. If I set the sun beside the moon, and if I set the land beside the sea, and if I set the town beside the country, and if I set the man beside the woman, I suppose some fool would talk about one being better. We live in a world of comparisons, where if you say one good thing about someone else, well, then you must be saying that that other person doesn't have that, or that other person isn't as valuable, valuable, or that other person doesn't matter as much. And what does G.K. Chesterton call them here? A fool. There are many fools out there in the world who are busy comparing men and women. Foolish. Dumb thing to do. If you compliment one, you must be pulling the other down, right? Well, Peter is calling men, don't give in to these foolish controversies. Honor your wife as she was made to be by your creator. Why does he have to say this? Well, the temptation for men is not to do this. I mean, your wife can't physically force you to do anything. She can't intimidate you. Unless you're Amber Heard, that is. Often women will fight with non-physical weapons like character assassination, slander, and innuendo. Especially historically, though, men use their physical dominance not to honor and protect what God made them to do, but rather to dominate and intimidate. And they treat their wives as lesser because they aren't their equal in strength. And that's often how in much more primitive societies that men work themselves out as who's the higher and who's the lower, who's the better fighter. You can't apply that metric to your wife. They don't possess the same level of aggression, antagonism, and belligerence, and so men look down on their wives. And although men and women are different, they are both equal before God, and that's exactly where Peter moves to, doesn't he? This is what he says. He says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Why? Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Wives are co-heirs. They inherit the exact same salvation. They receive the exact same honor. They receive the exact same crown of life as the husband. Before God, they are equal. Before God, they have the same value. He values them equally and he shows no partiality. It doesn't impress God that you can bench 100 kilos. It doesn't. It, do you think it impresses him uh, when his daughters are being treated as inferior by a mere mortal? because he's stronger than them, that God applies those metrics to human beings? Just because God calls a man to authority and headship over his household does not mean that he is somehow ontologically superior than his wife. And in our culture, it is so common to dishonor women rather than to treat them with honor. And one of the ways that I've seen this done is by demeaning women. I've heard men refer to their wives, you know, as the old ball and chain. You guys have heard that one. And my Bucks party... uh, I was put in a blouse and forced to go around uh, the pub and get all the men to sign my 
shirt. And almost every single one of them tried to say, dude, you're making the worst mistake of your life. Do not get married. They're like, you're, so, you're too young. Just don't do it. You hear men complaining about stuff like how much their wife talks rather than delighting in her creational difference. I'm sure you can add an extra hundred examples to this. I don't want to start offending all the women by all the things that people say out in the world. But one of the other ways that is much more common that our culture dishonors women is flattery. They give them false and insincere praise that doesn't line up with reality. In fact, there are whole businesses dedicated to pumping out phrases that they can't possibly know are true. You go to Instagram pages that say, I believe in you. You can do anything you set your mind to. You are worthy of love and joy. You are beautiful just the way you are. It's just mere flattery. You have to know someone to say that kind of stuff, don't you? You can't just speak it out into the universe and then it somehow becomes true. They are empty phrases that feel good for a little bit and then they lose their power in seconds. And men will occasionally use this to their advantage, telling a woman what she wants to hear to get something from her. But Christian men are men of truth. They do not flatter their wives, nor do they demean them. Sometimes living with your wife in an understanding way and showing her honor might mean that you have to call something out in your wife. It might mean you have to say something that ugh, might cause a conflict. It might mean you have to do something for the good of your household, which you know is going to make everyone upset. But you're the man. That's your job. You have to bear the brunt of that. You know what's right. You've got to do it. It also means that men have to learn how to romance their women. Today, men are absolutely hopeless at romancing their wives. You can chuck me at the top of the list as well. They fail to show even the faintest hint of love and so starve their wife the very thing they promised to give her on their wedding day. What did Adam do when Eve was created out of his rib and he saw her for the first time? What did he do? He sung a poem, a love song. Not many men are like that anymore. Charles Spurgeon was perhaps one of the most masculine preachers of the 19th century. I think he's probably one of the most manly preachers of all English preachers that ever lived. And yet, his relationship with his wife, Susanna, whom I named my daughter after, was one of tenderness and kindness. And it's interesting, when Susanna first laid her eyes on this famous young preacher that everyone's talking about, oh, look, Charles Spurgeon, this is what she wrote about him. She said, so this is the so-called eloquence. It does not impress me. What a painful, uh, countrified manner, because he was from the country, he was, you know, a rural bumpkin. Will he ever quit making flourishes with that terrible blue silk handkerchief? And his hair, why he looks like a barber's assistant. Now that is, a, that is an insult, if I've ever heard one. I'm going to add that to my repertoire. Anyway, yet despite her first assessment, you can see her, her act, reaction to Charles Spurgeon, but what did, what did Charles do when he was smitten with her? Well, he won her heart. Not only did he win it, but he kept winning it day by day. See, a lot of us men, when we were trying to put a ring on our wives, we did a lot of stuff, didn't we? We were pretty good. Well, I don't know all your stories, but I imagine if you're like me, we were pretty good. <laughs> but then marriage grows long, and that romancing kind of fades away, and then it goes away. And then it never really happens anymore. Well, I brought up Spurgeon for a reason. Because Spurgeon made sure to write letters to his wife every day while he traveled. And to our great privilege, we get to read some of them. He called his wife, his dear wifey, that was his nickname for her, 
He showed her his love, devotion, support, and respect. And here's something he wrote to his wife 15 years into their marriage. 15 years, remember that. I've been thinking over my strange history and musing on Eternal's love, great riverhead, from which such streams of mercy have flowed to me. Think of the love which gave me that dear lady for a wife and made her such a wife, to me the ideal wife. And as I believe, without exaggeration or love flourishing, the precise form in which God would make a woman for such a man as I. If he designed her to be the greatest of all earthly blessings to him, and in some sense a spiritual blessing too, for in that also I am richly profited by you. Though you would not believe it, I will leave this good matter ere the paper is covered, but not till I have sent you as many kisses as there are waves on the sea. Christian men have lost this ability, haven't we? If we're honest, it kind of feels a little gay, doesn't it? But guys... It's your wife. It's the most heterosexual thing you could possibly ever do. Love your wife. Honor her. Live with her in an understanding way. And feed her and fuel her with all the love of a Christian man. And if you're anything like me, we need to repent in dust and ashes for failing to do this. Often we find ourselves wanting to be alone. And not wanting to be with that woman that God has called us to. That's my third point. The enticement of solitude. Peter says something very interesting here at the end. He says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And it's interesting because the your here is not singular. It's not husband, make sure you do this so that your prayers, singular, are not hindered. He says, so that your prayers together as a couple are not hindered. Now, this heavily implies that the husband and the wife are praying together and they're doing it regularly. Husbands ought to make sure that their prayer life is not one of solitude, but one of togetherness. They have a togetherness, a radical togetherness with their wives that they together make their petitions before God. You have to live all of your life with your wife, not on some periphery. There must be a closeness and a togetherness because if this is not the case, then God warns that he will stop listening to the prayers of your household. So how is the prayers hindered? Well, if the husband is not acting in an understanding way, if he's being passive, aloof, and then bursting into anger, if the marriage relationship is not in fellowship and the husband and wife are at odds, the spiritual climate of that home is so toxic that God won't even answer your prayers until it's addressed. And interestingly, Paul mentions prayer in the context of marriage very differently. The Apostle Paul, let's see how he talks about prayer and marriage. Here he's speaking about marital intimacy. 1 Corinthians 7, 4-5. He says, for, if the wife does not have author- for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so the Apostle Paul sees marital intimacy and continued fellowship as so important that if the husband and wife are not close for very long, he says here, well, they basically become the devil's playground, don't they? The quickest and easiest way for Satan to undermine Christian households is to undermine the marital relationship. He did it in the beginning in the garden and he's continuing to do it today. 
He knows the creational differences and he knows how to exploit the curse. And he knows how to exploit sin in order to make Christian homes unfruitful, destructive and spiritually devoid places. And Peter is saying here that your prayers will be hindered if you are out of fellowship with your wife. Now, to some men, this is a genuine threat. To other men, they think, big deal. I barely pray to begin with. See, a godly man would be terrified that God is no longer listening to him and no longer answering his prayer because now the spiritual state of his family is open season. The Holy Spirit is not contending for the spiritual life of the home. The home is ceasing to be fruitful and left alone. The spiritual danger is very dark indeed. No longer contending for the souls of their children. No longer contending for the fidelity of their marriage. And you see Christian homes given over to adultery and children walking away. Christian man who is praying bold prayers, bringing his wife and kids before the throne of God and praying for his child's eternal soul, that they may know Jesus, that their home would be fruitful and their community would know Jesus. That is a bold prayer. And we need men praying bold prayers over their family. To a man who prays those kind of prayers, the thought that his prayers would be hindered, that's a big deal to him. He will make his relationship with his wife a major priority because he knows how important it is to God. If it's important to God, it's important to him. Now, it might be the case that despite our best efforts and our earnest leadership, our wives are still bitter and angry. They are walking in unforgiveness and they are holding every little fault against us. In that case, this verse is not saying to you that your prayers will be hindered before God. God knows your suffering. He sees it and he will reward it. As a man, if you lead the household the way that God calls you to and people aren't responding to it, he sees it. He rewards it. Here's what he is saying. If you don't honor your wives and you don't live with them in an understanding way, you will find both of your prayers hindered and the whole household will be out of function because men have this profound influence over the household just as the wife does. And all of us husbands need to feel the weight of this passage because although Peter only has one verse for us, don't think for a second it doesn't carry a punch with it. Your prayers are at stake. If you live in a marriage of unforgiven sin, grudges, mean comments and intimidation, you are living in a marriage that is putting both you and your family in great spiritual danger. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 14 to 15, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The most important relationship to get right are the ones that are closest to you. There is no relationship in this universe closer than a man and his wife. Yet it is often those who are closest to us that we live with the most unforgiveness, the most rudeness, and the most mean-spiritedness. Ensure that the aroma of your household is an aroma of grace and forgiveness. For that is a family that reflects the great character of God. That is a family that is not only in fellowship with each other, but in fellowship with God. There's another kind of Christian man. And I say Christian with quotations. Their reaction to this passage is, ah, I didn't really need those prayers anyway. That is you, I fear for you. I'm afraid for your soul. Because Peter is assuming here that this would be a serious warning for a Christian man. 
And if it is not, this isn't a serious warning for you, this doesn't bother you, then you are living in folly. And either the Spirit will convict you of that folly, or you aren't a Christian at all. Those are the only two options. It ultimately doesn't matter if you profess faith in Christ, and yet you are indifferent to the things of God. Jesus says that those who inherit the kingdom of God are born again. And those who know God would rather die than be cut off from him. We must be united to God in our marriages. Wives, please don't use this as an opportunity to attack your man. If we all get about the business of what we need to do individually, we'll find our marriages flourishing and being renewed. Let's pray. Father, I must confess this is a very hard word today. For Lord, in our culture, in our churches, we're not very good at marriage. We're not very good at living the way that you called us to live. We're not good at loving our wives the way you called us to. And so, Father, I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would cause us to a deep repentance, that we would see ourselves making real changes, that our relationship with our wives from this day forward would be completely new, that we would love her as you called us to, not in some reaction to the way that she's treated us, whether good or bad, but because that's what you said. And Lord, rather than clamoring for our needs and wants, Father, would we endure suffering just as Christ suffered on the cross. For Lord, we know that this suffering is good and it will produce subsequent glories. And this profound leadership that we'll have as sacrificial leaders of our home will be palpable and it will be seen by all. Father, you called us not to lay our light under a, under a, a bushel or a, a basket, but to let it shine to all. And Father, as men, would we use our leadership as a light to shine to all. Father, if there are any marriages today that are walking in unforgiveness, I pray that that would end today. That, Lord, before communion, we would be reconciled to our spouse. That we would be reconciled to the members of our household. And that our household would walk in fellowship for the rest of our days. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your spirit that brings new life and rebirth. And I pray that for all these people in Jesus' name. Amen.